right, folks, we have an awesome episode for you today. This is one of those that's, I'm going to say, an instant classic. It's a not a two-parter. It probably should have been because it's so long. And funny enough, Scott did ask, should this be a two-parter? And I'm like, nah, we're, we'll be able to cover it in one. But the way we got into it, and I should have listened to him, uh, but we'll have to maybe, maybe do another one or, or do an update here soon. But uh, the Mississippi river speed record, like the entire Mississippi, 2,200 miles. Scott and his team set the Guinness world record for the fastest paddle down it ever. 16 days, 20 hours, 16 minutes, Scott and his team. Scott has tried this before a few years ago and failed right at the end. It was very crazy, wild, wild story, very dramatic end. Uh, to that attempt um, and tried it again this year, just recently over the summer, spring and summer and knocked it out and got it. And it's just an amazing accomplishment. And the logistics are crazy. And the amount of planning that went into it is absolutely insane. Five years of putting this together through this. And what I love about this, one of my favorite aspects about this story is that Scott not only said, you know, we get this so much like, hey, I'm going to do this and look at me and that's great. But through this training and and getting ready for this, he realized just how few people in his town of Minneapolis actually experienced the Mississippi. I don't know about you, but I live in a place where, you know, I live on the ocean and there's so many people that just never interact with it, never get on that medium. And I think it's just, it's almost like living next to the Grand Canyon and just not caring. I don't care how often you see something like that. It's always beautiful. I see the ocean every day. It still takes my breath away. And I I think that you can learn to to see nature that way. And so many people don't interact with the Mississippi River. Well, Scott's trying to change that because he's seen how much of an impact it's had on his life. He has started the Mississippi River Paddle Weekend that has uh, racers can can choose from basically five different lengths to race down the Mississippi River, five miles all the way up to 150 miles. And so it's an amazing way to introduce tons of people, get people out there and use all these skills and all this experience and, and make an impact on your community. I love it. And the coolest thing about Scott is that he's not a full-time adventure. He doesn't do this as a job. He does this on the side. It's a passion. And I think that gives a lot of people hope, uh, gives me hope, a lot of people inspiration that, hey, I can hold down a full-time job and do this. He and his wife uh, work as nurses at the University of Minnesota Hospital. And so, yeah, he's got a career. He's got things he has to do. He has responsibilities, yet he's able to piece together uh, a plan, an amazing plan to go after a Guinness World Record and knock this out. So like I said, this is an instant classic. Scott's stories were amazing. His detail was awesome. His passion for the story was incredible. This was one of the best interviews I've done in a while. So thank you, Scott, for uh, being on the show. And this is going to inspire a lot of people. Let's go ahead and, and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today is, you know, I'm I might be speaking too soon, Scott, but I think this is going to be one of those iconic episodes that I'll point to as like, well, you know, this is, people ask me what we talk about on the show and I say, well, we talk about folks that are doing everything from climbing Mount Everest to crossing the Grand Canyon on foot to, to that list, I'm adding, you know, paddling the entire Mississippi and breaking records. So 
I have a feeling this is going to be a really good conversation. So Scott Miller, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope I can live up to that advanced billing. <laughs> I, well, d- through my research, I know you will. It's 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 not going to be a problem. But, you know, we're here today to talk about the uh, Mississippi speed record. But really what I, I want to dive into is um, your background just a little bit. Where, where you grew up, where home is for you, if those aren't the same places, you know, dive in. And, and, and where you are right now, I imagine you're at home. I am at home here in South Minneapolis, just eight blocks west of the Mississippi River, actually. I'm very much a Minnesota guy, and the adventures that I've done have tended to be either in Minnesota or starting in Minnesota, including including the one that we're going to talk about. So it's very much home for me. So you've been around the Mississippi your, your whole life. Yeah, usually within a few miles. In fact, the house I grew up in, we had a beautiful trail corridor. You could ride your bike about, I think, like 10 miles to the east and there was the Coon Rapids Dam and you can actually walk your bike across the dam over the river. And so I would do that all the time. It was pretty cool. How prevalent was getting on the river growing up? Cause you know, there's a lot of people that grow up near the ocean and it might not just, there might be this thing that's there or the mountains, even if you live, you know, somewhere near the mountains, but depending on the family you're in and your background and your interests, you might not ever engage with that side of where you live. What, what was that like for you? I think there's very few people who paddle the Mississippi in Minnesota for a bunch of reasons. One, there's a lot of smaller rivers that are maybe a little more accessible, a little bit less intimidating. And two, you've got the boundary waters and you've got 10,000 lakes. So everybody's fixated on, on their lakes, their cabins, and then going up to the Canadian border to paddle in the paddling paradise that is the Boundary Waters wilderness. And the Mississippi is comparatively neglected, which is why, and maybe we'll talk more about this later, but I started a a weekend of canoe races and tours that we're going into our third year next June to get more people to appreciate it because it's spectacular. And, you know, it's, it's generally a commercial river with barges on it starting in Minneapolis, but there's 500 miles before that uh, where you don't have any barges and it's totally gorgeous and relatively relatively wild. There's no lack of water in that area, from my understanding. I mean, you have like three rivers all converging there near the Twin Cities. And it, it's almost like, yeah, it's there. It's the Mississippi. It's iconic. But there's so much other stuff to paddle. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So the locals, I think, um, kind of forget about it and kind of overlook it. But I'm hoping to change that because you've got In the long distance paddling world, you've got these iconic events like the Texas Water Safari. There's a whole culture around that in Texas and the Missouri River 340 in Missouri. There are 800 people do that race. And of course, in Florida, you've got the Water Tribe and the Everglades Challenge. And we don't really have a signature event like that in Minnesota. In Michigan, you've got the Osable Canoe Marathon. But Yukon, now Alabama has one. Yeah. Um, I I saw that Yeti, the, you know, the cups and uh, cooler brand just released a film about the Texas Water water safari like last week following the team along which was really cool to see and I, I guarantee it's a ton of similarities to what y'all went through but you know a tenth of the length right so yeah, yeah. your adventure is enormous but that, that's interesting so when when did you start realizing you know this is this is like an, a medium I can engage with and have these amazing experiences There's a creek right here in the Twin Cities that starts at Lake Minnetonka and flows 21 miles east into the Mississippi River. And it's not runnable most of the year, but when the water levels are up, 
it's like a five hour flume ride. I mean, it's like more exciting than anything <laughs> at Disney world for my money. And it's, you know, it's 21 miles long. It's filled with little rapids and you go through rich people's backyards and you go through light industrial areas. You stop at the dairy queen and get some ice cream. You go through swamps and lakes and golf courses. And my dad took me on that when I was a kid. And it was like the most fun thing. I mean, it was just the most fun thing. And then I taught canoeing merit badge at the scout camp I worked at in Northern Minnesota. And then my best friend, Todd Foster, you know, 20 ish years ago, we were in our twenties and he was like, Hey, let's go to the boundary waters. And I had actually never been. And it was like, let me get the guidebooks. Let me figure this out. And we planned a 10 day trip. And it was like this epic adventure, like 10 days in the wilderness. How do you make this work? And it was, I just loved all the planning and getting ready for it. And then the actually doing it too. And then I found out that especially in Minnesota, there's just tons of canoe routes and the department of natural resources here has incredible maps and they, they cut out the brush and they have landings and you can figure out where to start and stop. And as long as you can figure out the shuttle, there's all these incredible rivers. So I started paddling on various rivers in the state, including the Mississippi. And then it was only in 2018 that I even ever heard that setting the record was a thing. I'd never even heard of that before. Well, I want to ask too, because something we actually haven't talked about a lot in the show, but it's perfect because you know, we know these places that get a lot of attention that we talk about a lot on the show, you know, they're going to get tons of people there. But what we try to often bring attention to is the places that aren't necessarily as marketed or don't get as much of the spotlight in the adventure or outdoor world. And I feel like the Boundary Waters is a very underappreciated area for for folks that don't live nearby. What is that place like? What do you experience when you're there? I want to just touch on that and why it was such an impactful experience for you. I I, I don't remember how big it is, but it's like a million acres or, I mean, it's massive. It's, it's a massive wilderness area on the Canadian border. And you can, you can go in it for weeks at a time. And it's no, generally speaking, for the most part, there's no motors allowed. So it's really a paddling paradise and that's all it is. And you've got bedrock coming up. You can see the bedrock in many places like the Canadian Shield. So you've got pristine water. You've got hundreds, if not thousands of lakes. You've got these portages you've got campsites, it's great fishing, you've got huge lakes, small lakes, and it's just absolutely gorgeous and peaceful and quiet. It's a dark sky zone, so the stars are incredible. You got loons calling, you've got moose. It's, I mean, it's truly an extraordinary place. There is uh, nothing, I, I think, more majestic than a loon calling in the morning with some fog over a lake. I mean, that's doesn't get better than that. You're right. It was a million acres, 1,200 miles of canoe routes, 12 hiking trails, and over 2,000 designated campsites. That's just in, you know, the designated Boundary Waters area. But with a lot of these places, you know, it's it's not just the protected area that's is brilliant. It's The surrounding areas are also very similar, just not under the same designation. It's a huge area, huge area. So would you say that was the experience that kind of, I don't know, opened your eyes maybe? Yeah, I think that's very true. And then, I mean, when you talk paddling in Minnesota, the Boundary Waters is what's going to come up. That's what everybody knows about the Boundary Waters, talks about it, goes to it. That is kind of paddling in Minnesota. But then there's all these rivers that are 
incredible to paddle. So my buddy and I, we went to the Boundary Waters on multiple long trips, but then we also started doing the rivers. And the rivers are closer to the Twin Cities. In many ways, they're more accessible. There's, they're free. You don't have to get a permit. And the DNR keeps campsites on them. So you can take a multi-day canoe trip on many different rivers, including the Mississippi in Minnesota and have, I mean, a couple summers ago, my buddy and I went just like less than two hours north of the Twin Cities. We put our canoe in and we spent, you know, we came back down like 40 or 50 miles back to the Twin Cities and we camped on an island and we had, what are those prehistoric birds <laughs> that make an amazing noise? The sandhill cranes coming oh, yeah, through. Yeah. And like, and when you're on the river, even if you're in a developed area, you can't tell because it's like a ribbon of wilderness. You know, you mm. the, the, generally speaking, it's not developed on the shoreline and you've got forests and you've got islands and you're looking at water, sky, light, wind, and animals. And that's it. You know, you feel like you're in the middle of the boundary waters, even though like for the example of the Mississippi, you might just be 20 minutes outside the downtown Minneapolis. In fact, I live in South Minneapolis and pool one, which is uh, between the locks and dams here, just east of my house, is the only gorge on the Mississippi River. And when you're in pool one, there are places where you can see a bridge, but other than that, all you're seeing is water, sky, and trees and the gorge. And it's just, you'd, you'd think you're in the middle of nowhere. Do you find yourself, because I do where I live, I, I, do you find yourself trying to convince people or show them like, look at what you have right here and you don't even realize it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we started these races and tours. It's just one weekend in June. And we've had, we had people come from 13 states and like three Canadian provinces this past June to paddle the Mississippi. We're trying to build a homegrown, get the Minnesotans to come. And I think we we were over half Minnesotans, but then people in the rest of the nation, you know, you're, what is it? You're never a prophet in your hometown. Like everybody else is like, Oh my God, I want to go paddle the iconic Northern Minnesota, pristine Mississippi. You know? So we were getting as many people from other places as we were from here. Tell me about two paddles a little bit before we dive in. Cause it seems like chronologically, this is what happened. You, you wanted to get people out there. And one way to do that is to set up these events for people to come and participate. The Mississippi 150, the 48, it's all happens over a weekend in June. I know we sent some beer there last year. And then the idea to do the Mississippi speed record came about to help get the word out there. But I love this because you're trying to get people, people need structure to enjoy the outdoors a lot of times. And so, a lot of times that structure comes in the form of an event that's being put on or something like that. Tell us about these experiences and what you're trying to do with two paddles. Well, the funny thing is, is it actually happened opposite the way that you, th you know, <laughs> the way you I thought, thought it would. You went after the speed record first. Well, yeah, because the speed record idea came about in 2018. And we were going to go in 2020 and the coronavirus shut us down. And then I had a new team and we had rival teams in 2021. And the rival team set the record. My team two weeks later was poised to break their record and a big storm took us out in New Orleans with just a hundred miles left. Sounds you know? like a country song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just crazy. And after that happened in 2021, after we went down, Scott Mansker, who started the Missouri river 340 and was running the support boat for us, the safety boats, who's this incredible river captain, he, you know, he has this huge fleet of, support boats and volunteers that staff the Missouri River 340 to make sure that 800 people going 340 miles on the Missouri River are safe, you know, because they got barges, they got wing dams, they got wind, they got weather. So he's like an expert and he volunteered to be the support crew for 
the world record attempt, which was such an honor. It was just amazing to have him. And then he's like, hey, if you're training and you're going to do the Mississippi, you really should come do my race because you're going to learn a lot. And so I was like, absolutely. So summer of 2021, I went and did his race. And it was such an incredible experience because it did not feel like a corporate event at all. It felt like a grassroots, even in its 16th, 17th year, it's like hundreds of volunteers, all these small towns. You've got people in aluminum canoes, fancy scurf skis, and everything in between. You've got people trying, it's like a marathon. You've got people who are competitive who might win the race, but the vast majority of people just have a time goal or they're just trying to finish it in the amount of time that's allotted. And they're going 340 miles, stopping in small towns, getting a burger from a Boy Scout, or getting a piece of pie from the church group here in all these beautiful small towns and making their way down the Missouri River. And I was like, why don't we have an event like this in Minnesota? Because this is an incredible community event getting people out on the river. And we've got the iconic Mississippi River in Minnesota. I want to see if I can replicate this experience. So that that's what led. We were just going to do a 150-mile race so you could just take the weekend off and come do this race. But then somebody had started these smaller races and we kind of rolled them in and turned it into a whole weekend of events. So now we have something from, for the beginner, the rank beginner, all the way up to the ultra distance paddler all on one weekend. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm looking right. It's like seven events, the Mississippi river high school paddle challenge, family, five mile, 7.5, 10, 25, 48 and 150 mile event. You can join any of those, build your way up, do them all. What was that reception when you started this? The reception was good. We had 200 people come the first year. This last year was our second year, and we didn't grow much, probably because we were terribly distracted by the world record attempt. So we're hoping to grow more <laughs> next year. I mean, to my mind, there's very few activities that are as high quality as getting on a moving river with other people because you're using your body and you're active, but you're not paddling so it's not so intense that you can't chat and hang out and have a great conversation and you've got amazing things to see literally around every corner you're going to see some wildlife you're going to see a small town you're going to see some kid in his backyard jumping on a trampoline you're going to see a bluff you know you never know what you're going to see so it's just such a stimulating activity socially and being outdoors and then having the moving water which is its own challenge and its own it helps push you along so even when you take a break you're still moving and it's just a wonderful thing. And everybody that came out for the event, whether they did the five mile event or the 150 mile, they all got to experience that magical world of the river. And I think there's just something so, so cool about anytime you're out on the river with other people, you're like guaranteed to have a good time. Y'all are just trying to provide the structure for folks to come and do that and do that together and experience it together. That's, and, and so, like you said, you were distracted this past year with the world record attempt of the Mississippi River, which is no major, uh, I mean, no minor feat. That is a major challenge, a huge, iconic river, like we've said, and to set the fastest known time or the speed record on that, it's like, it's renowned. It's world renowned. It's not some, you know, infrequently paddled route. It's the freaking Mississippi River. It's like the entire, I mean, it's it's the reason America's America in a lot of ways is that river. Totally. It's iconic. I can't think of a better word than that. So this idea popped up in 2018. Tell us about getting ready for it because, you know, it takes a, a team. You're going to do it as a team. Now tell us about a little bit about the challenge. Where was the record? Because I know it changed as you got closer to this because uh, another team broke it. We were talking about Bobby Johnson and their team before. Friend of the show and friend friend of mine. T 
tell us a little bit about where the standing was and what it looks like. Do you have to do it with a team? Is it solo or is it all just like whatever setup gets down there the fastest is the world record? It's just a crazy thing. I mean, it's administered by Guinness World Records and you know, they don't necessarily like to have records that are tied to a specific geographic place, but this one, the first time it was set was in 1937, and it is so iconic, they can't really shut it down at this point. You know, there's too much interest. We're the eighth team to hold the record. First one was in 1937, it was like 56 days, and then some guys from the Royal British Air Force set it second time in 1978 at like 35 days or something. And then in the 80s, it got lower down into the 20s, 20 days amount of time and everybody was doing it well people did it in different configurations the way guinness wrote the record it doesn't matter how many paddlers you have so for a long time when i was prepping we were looking to beat the 2003 record which was set by just two guys who are mountainous titans of canoe paddle racing like they're they're huge in that niche world so they're like really really good paddlers and in talking to them they would say you know, you guys go ahead with your four-person team. We don't think that's an advantage because you've got twice as many people as can get sick or get injured, twice as many personality conflicts. You know, you go ahead and try your four-person team. And in fact, these guys I know and respect, they tried a four-person team in 2014, didn't make it. 2017 didn't make it. One time, one guy got heat stroke. One time, bad winds knocked him out. And I think also at one point, uh, lightning struck the water while the guy was standing it and he got a little zapped and I think he's fine, but it's like incredibly difficult to set this record. And, and you can see from all the failed attempts. So where did the record, you know, we tried in 2021 and, and the rival team set the record literally two weeks before we did uh. just under 18 days. They broke the old record by about eight hours. So the record stood from 2003 all the way to 2021. Yeah, I feel like I'm all over the map now. Help me, help rein me in here. Well, I mean, that's that's the Mississippi, right? It goes out in every direction at some point. <laughs> it's a it's a huge challenge. You have these. You, there's there's a little bit of ambiguity with the rules itself, but you got to get down the river faster than anyone ever. You could have a team of four, and you were kind of going back and forth. Take us take us through. You know, what is the setup? Because this isn't just you're going out paddling and it's your canoe and your four guys. There's a lot of support going on. What what are well, some of those logistics you had to figure out? I, I've I still don't consider myself a great athlete and certainly not any kind of an Olympic level athlete or, you know, whatever. So the reason why I thought I had any chance at all to set this record is because when you do something this long, the athleticism is important, but the importance of organization and planning and strategy and the mental game and the teamwork, all of that becomes so much more elevated. Uh, it ended up that when we set the record just this past May, I had three of the best paddlers in the nation. And that, that didn't hurt anything at all to have those incredible guys, but it did rest on the backs of, I mean, we had the first team we had, we were going to go in 2020, we decided that we were going to have a four person team and the guy I was planning it with who set the record in 1980 and was trying to set it again at 59 years old, his 17 year old daughter was on the team. We spent over a year training and our strategy was to have two guys resting in the canoe and two guys paddling at all times. There'd always be two people resting and maybe we would have had a shot maybe, but when it fell apart because of the lockdown stay at home orders with the, early COVID-19 pandemic and everything, you know, the guy I was doing it with, KJ Milhone, we kind of had a falling out. 
he put together his own team for 2021 and I put together my own team. So then we had rival teams and we both quickly evolved to have a very similar strategy because he ended up having your buddy, Bobby Johnson and Rod and Rod Price from Florida, two very experienced paddlers along with his daughter on the team. And I actually paddled the 340 in the summer of 20, what was it? 2020. I don't even remember now, but I paddled the 340 with Bobby and Rod. So it's like, like an incestuous little circle full of, of, uh, 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 crossing. I, mean, I was trying to get them on my team. He ended up getting them on his team and, you know, but Bobby and Rod taught me a ton about like, how do you paddle a 340 mile race and how do you keep yourself in the boat and how do you deal with sleep deprivation? Cause that's a huge part of the strategy is like, how do you sleep as little as possible? So anyway, we both ended up with this strategy where you've got four guys in the canoe and, it really changed. Our sleep strategy changed from the 2021 attempt to the 2023 attempt. And we ended up having a lot of flexibility. So we really had at times four people paddling at times three, most of the time, three people, but then at night, a lot of times we only had two people and that just gave us maximize the flexibility. We had two guys sleeping in the canoe under a canopy. We basically lived in this tiny little 23 foot canoe, you know, that's only three feet wide at its widest. We basically lived in that boat for 17 days. How often did you stand up or get out? We, we, we had to stand, we had to go to shore to switch our positions in the canoe and get a new guy in to into the middle to sleep. Mm -hmm. So on average, we were switching about every six hours, like four times a day. And then camping, but, of course. Oh, no, I guess you didn't camp because you were always paddling. Right. So we're spending as little time on shore as possible because even if no one's paddling, if you're out in the shipping channel in the main flow, you're moving and that's, you want to stay out in that flow as much as you possibly can. Got it. Now people are going to want to know, cause I, I've learned, even though I might know the answers, I know a lot of listeners haven't had the pleasure of talking to hundreds of people about this stuff. And, and so how, how did you go to the bathroom? That, a lot of people are going to have yeah, that question. Everybody asks that question, okay. you know, and even that strategy evolved. Uh, and so this attempt that we where we actually set the record in, this year and broke the old record almost by a full day by 23 hours and 30 minutes. Part of this record is you have to get lucky because you got to have good water. You got to get lucky with all the locks, the waiting times of the locks, there's 29 locks and you got to get lucky with the weather. So all those things matter, but we also kept evolving, learning and learning because I had the failed attempt in 2021. And so we had the best setup for going to the bathroom this year, by far, we had a whole bunch of wag bags, you know, which are made for desert environments because you're not allowed to go number two in the desert and just leave it sitting there because it'll be there forever. So they designed these bags where you go to number two in this foil bag and it's got some chemicals in it to neutralize the odor. You seal it up in a Ziploc. And we ended up getting a whole bunch of those this time. We Last time I used homemade ones with cat litter, which worked pretty good, but these were the these were even better. And then we had a, a guy named Scott Duffus that I met. I don't even remember how I met him in Minnesota. And he ended up spending over 200 hours perfecting our canoe to be perfect. He did all what? these modifications, not to the hull, but in terms of bulkheads, and the cover. 200 hours. That's, un I mean, I mean, what were some of the major changes from like a traditional or recreational canoe? Well, there's a bunch. I mean, just to stay on the track of, of going number two for a second, we ended up having these wooden seats in the middle. The, the front and back seats were um, 
sort of anatomically, ergonomically smart seats, but the middle were just these wooden bench seats. And we used these big purple cushions to make them comfortable. And we had these custom seat backs and he made all that work. But then we had a, a hole cut out in the wood that was, we had a little rope. So you pull that hole out, put the wag bag underneath you and you could just go to the bathroom right there in the canoe. And then we would, fortunately our support crew was so amazing you know, they were willing to take these disgusting bags from us and dispose of them properly. And we ended up using, you know, it was way better to go in the canoe than on shore because on shore, like the stress of like, I have to go as fast as I possibly can. But in the canoe, you could take your sweet time. You could throw the cover over you. So you had privacy and, mm. you know, you could, and we're eating so many calories, you know, consuming so much that number two was kind of a disgusting, you know, you had to take yeah. your time to make sure everything to have, you know, some modicum of hygiene, which really, you know, there wasn't a lot of hygiene. I mean, the the people in our support crew told us they they said you guys are sleeping in human soup. You know, and they they described the smells as just disgusting in the canoe by the end. You know? Oh my god! But anyway, the other modifications to the canoe he put in we put in two bulkheads, uh, making a nine and a half foot sleeping chamber in the center of the canoe. And each guy in seats two and three in the middle, they could either put the seat in to paddle, or they could take the seat out to go down and sleep underneath the cover. And then we had navigation lights in the front. We had a headlight. We had a navigation tablet to keep us in the shipping channel. We had rear lights so the barges would know where we are. We had GPS units to record our position and broadcast it to the public and save it for Guinness purposes. And all of that, Scott Duffus rigged up one central electronic wiring system throughout the whole canoe. And at the flip of the switch, we could turn all of that on. We had a bilge pump. And we just we just switched out this big lithium ion battery in a waterproof case every 24 hours. And it was, we didn't have to worry about any of that. On the previous attempt, we had a million headaches trying to keep everything charged and turning it all on and on. And this made it so much easier. It's unbelievable. Now, is that all, you know, stuff you requested and from learning about it? Or were you, I don't know, did, did, did this guy just do this for you? Well, I'm not a very handy guy. So I had different guys work on the canoe and I paid them lots of money over the over the five years. And none of them did as good a job as Scott did. And he was a volunteer. <laughs> so just incredible. And he's just a guy who's been a canoe racer and knows how to do stuff and figure stuff out. Like everything he was figuring out was custom, you know, nothing really off the shelf. He was trying to figure out how to do, how do I do this? And every idea we had like, hey, we learned last time the support boat can't tell how far away we are at night when we've just got one stern light on the pole. Because when you see lights on the river at night, you can't tell if it's 50 feet away or three miles away. So, so the support boat guy, Scott Manster was like, Hey, put two lights on that pole. Cause then we'll be able to tell how far away we are. Cause you'll be able, if, you know, if they look closer together or further apart and I'm like, Hey Scott, you know, I know you've already worked 200 hours on this and you've done like 50 things. Do you think he could put another light? Yep. No problem. And then everything we would suggest to him to improve on, he would do everything we asked, but then he would think independently and come up with something even better than what we were asking for. Jeez. So it was just amazing. It seems like the success of this adventure was in a, a lot in the hands of the community around it, the people like him helping. How did you find people like that? How do you inspire people like that to be a part of this? Is it just the audacity of the adventure itself draws people or was it your ability to build the team, a mixture of both? What would you say now looking back? It was definitely both. Cause like Scott Mansker got in touch with us, the director of the 340, the founder of that race in Missouri. 
he like volunteered himself. Like he saw our stuff online and got in touch and was like, Hey, do you guys need a support boat? And it was like, Oh my God. Like, like literally there's nobody better qualified in the entire world. Right. And I didn't have to, I, we just create the content, put it online and then people would get excited. But in other cases, you know, you have to be sort of shameless about asking for help and putting yourself out there. You know, eventually I would feel guilty. Like, how am I getting all these people to help me? You know, I'm not doing enough for them. But eventually I had to learn, like, people want to be part of a big, fun, exciting adventure. You know, and we had we had over 20 people on our support crew, either on shore, moving base camp in these RVs every 24 hours. And then we had two support boats and people cycling on and off the boats. And it was this whole huge, like, operation. And they all had their own adventure, right? I mean, they're, just to take a take a caravan from northern Minnesota to southern Louisiana and moving all the time and camping in these places and seeing the Mississippi River Valley is an incredible adventure. I get that guilt feeling and knowing like, you know, why are they doing this for us? But yeah, it, it, it is to be a part of it in their own way because not everybody can can be on the boat, of course. Right. Of the four positions, and I want to include some pictures and whatnot when we post this episode. Of the four positions, because I was looking at a picture when you were talking about rotating and sleeping arrangements, which one had a reputation for being the best and which position had a reputation for being the worst? Because you were all rotating constantly. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, man, they're all so different. They're all so different. I'm sure everybody had their favorites and and not favorites. Well, we had two guys that that were better in the bow and two guys that were preferred the stern. Um, So that worked out well. So we had myself and Wally were in the stern more often and Judd and Paul were in the engines. They were the they're the muscle in the bow, you know it's crazy. You move positions in that 23 foot canoe and it's like, you're in a whole new world. I mean, when you're in the bow, you've got nothing but water around you. You can't see any of your teammates and you're just paddling and you are the engine. You're setting the pace. A big part of canoeing, if you're trying to go fast is technique. And a big part of the technique is paddling in sync. So the more in sync we can be, the faster we'll be without, without having to work any harder, right? If you can just be in sync. You're not doing any more muscle. You're not burning any more calories, but just by being in sync and having good form, you're going to go faster. So that bow person is important to set the pace. Um, and then seats two and three were a little bit harder to paddle in because the canoe is wider there. So you have to reach a little further. So those are probably the least desirable places um, in terms of having a pure paddling stroke, but it was easier to take a break in there. There's more room, there's more room to eat, more room to change clothes, more room to go to the bathroom. And then in the stern, you can see all three of your teammates out in front of you. You're in charge of steering the boat. You're in charge of looking at the navigation tablet and keep making all the decisions about navigation. Plus you've got the rudder pedals. We had a rudder, which made a big difference. So in the stern, you're just busy because you're also on the radio to the support boats, to the lock masters, to the barges. You got the navigation tablet, you got the, the, the pedals. So you're just busy. It's just like, a, it's very cognitively busy in the stern. Jeez. <laughs> What an undertaking. What did training look like? Because you don't just hop in and do this. You know, you have to work together. You have to kind of have your systems dialed in before you start a, a record attempt. What were some of those big key things to figure out in moments in training? Yeah, I mean, with the team that set the record this year, the, the three guys I paddled with are so experienced in ultra-distance paddling races that 
they, they didn't need to train in terms of keeping themselves in shape or any of the technique, but we still had, it was still very important to have these training trips. And like our last shakedown trip, it was going to be in March. We were going to start in Iowa. We we're going to have the support boat and time and time again on these, on these training trips, you would learn how capricious the Mississippi is and how flexible you have to be because it was like going to be 20 degrees in Iowa. And we're like, all right, let's move South to Tennessee. So we go all the way down to Memphis and then it's freezing cold in Memphis. I mean, freezing cold. And the first day we put on the water and the conditions were so bad and the waves were so big. We only paddled for like three hours and we were supposed to paddle for 48 hours straight. And we're like, this is too dangerous. The support boat can't be here because the water levels are too low. Let's pack it in and we'll go again tomorrow. And we just had to, you had to make smart decisions in terms of safety and just being flexible. But then there's nothing like being out on the river with the four guys in that boat. And every time we went out on a train trip, I would take notes in my phone and we get done and I'd call up Scott Duffus. All right, here's 15 more things we need to change. And then I talked to my wife's uncle, Moose, Mike Moose Doherty was in the support crew leader. And we'd always have notes like, okay, Moose, this is how we got to organize the support crew. We need to do this with food. And we figured out like getting these thermoses that keep food hot for like 12 hours. We figured out to get some NFL headline style Bluetooth headphones so that at night the bowman and the sturman could put these on and they could just whisper and talk to each other and not strain their voices or wake the guys up in the middle. And it was just like every time we're training, we're just learning like tons and tons of stuff. And over this five-year project, we got got pretty good at it. <laughs> you seem like the type of person that that very detail-oriented keeps the wheels turning, keeps things moving forward, sees the whole picture, but can also get in the nitty gritty. How did you deal with, what kind of personality are you when it comes to, you know, we can't paddle like we expected with this training session because of the weather, or because, you know, the the temperature or someone got a flat tire. How do you deal with those situations? Is it is it challenging for you or you kind of roll with it? The thing is with this, it's just, it was so exciting. Like it was just so unbelievably exciting. I mean, the Mississippi starts in Northern Minnesota. It's a tiny Creek. You're going through rapids and wild rice swamps. Then you've got three massive lakes. The biggest one, of which is a 14 mile crossing. People have died crossing this lake. It's only 15 feet deep. So the waves get really big, really easily. And it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just like nonstop adventure and nonstop having to figure out what to do about the problem now. Like, oh, it's snowing now. Oh, it's raining now. Oh, we're really wet. And we need to figure out showers. And the support crew figures out, hey, if you take off the shipping channel and you go in this little side channel around this island, there's a casino with showers at their marina and you can take a quick quick pit stop there. I mean, it was just, you know, we get to lock 15 in Iowa and it's midnight and we have to wait for the barge coming out of the lock and the, suddenly we find ourselves in this insanely strong current and we cannot hold our position in the river and we're in danger of going through the dam, which is a life-threatening situation. We got to call the support boat over, water's coming into the canoe. We Finally, we get through the lock and everybody's completely stressed out, completely like nervous systems are shot, sleep deprived. Okay, we're going to spend four hours on shore and sleep and recover. Fortunately, we have a 20-hour lead, but like there was never a time when you could just settle in. Like you had to, and that was part of the fun of it. And the three guys I was with, every long distance canoe race they're in is the same. You, you I mean, you just, you have to love dealing with uncertainty and change and weird stuff happening constantly, or you're never going to have a chance. Well, take us through after all this planning, after all this preparation and getting things together and, and, and having a setback in 2021, take us through what it feels like to get in the water 
at the headwaters of the Mississippi, which start at this lake, going down this little creek, really. What was that like? Itasca State Park and Lake Itasca, where the river starts, is this, it's really, truly an iconic location. Like, it's not a national park, but it's the biggest, most visited, most well-funded state park in the state of Minnesota. And there's lodges you can stay in, and it's gorgeous. There's big, huge white pine and red pine. You are in the, you're in the boreal forest, you know, on the southern edge of it, but you are still in the boreal forest. And Lake Itasca is pristine. And everybody who grows up in Minnesota goes to Itasca State Park when you're a kid and they've got a little rocks. They've got rocks across this creek right at the headwaters where it comes out of Lake Itasca. So like if you grow up in Minnesota, everybody walked across the Mississippi and it's, you know, it's just this iconic location. It's so beautiful. So to actually go there and have all these tourists there taking their pictures and there's a webcam 24 seven, you can see what's happening at the headwaters to be putting a canoe in there and telling people, yeah, we're going, we're putting a canoe in here. I mean, nobody puts a canoe in there. Like the Appalachian Trail, thousands of people do it. It's just a few dozen people a year that attempt to do the entire Mississippi River, most of whom don't make it, and the vast majority of whom aren't trying to set a record. So it is like so exciting. And then right away, you are in the wilderness. You're hearing packs of wolves howling through the woods. You've got swans swimming in the water. You've got wild rice, you've got rapids, you've got little gorges in the pine forest for 50 miles until you get to the first city, which is Bemidji, which is like an iconic Northwoods, Minnesota. It's on beautiful Lake Bemidji, which the river flows through. You've got a huge statue of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. And I mean, it's just, and it just keeps going. Like it's just nonstop, total adventure. Never know what you're going to see around the next corner. The river keeps getting bigger and bigger. You go through these huge lakes, you battle huge waves, 500 miles all the way to the Twin Cities. And then everything changes because you're in the locks and dams section and you're in the driftless area with these huge bluffs and huge rolling hills and these little really cute little river towns right on the river that you know had their heyday a hundred years ago and are so happy to have you come through and make a big deal and then people are following our gps and we've got people coming and lighting off fireworks blowing air horns homemade signs cheering us on i mean it was just absolutely incredible sounds so awesome well well, well, tell us a little bit about maybe Early on, because it seems like I, I love a tight, small uh, river to paddle where you, you don't know, you can't see around the next bend, which is like, you know, right there. But the Mississippi, it, it starts out that way. Then it opens up, obviously, to this enormous river. Take us when it was smaller and, and, and tighter, maybe those first 500 miles or so. Uh, I know you were crossing those lakes then, too. But what what was something that maybe didn't go to plan during that segment. Do you have any stories or something that really kind of said, uh-oh, is this going to is this going to set us back? Well, the crazy thing is is that if you're going to try to set this record, you ideally if in a perfect world filled with unlimited resources, you would take off from April 1st until June and you'd be able to leave whenever the ice melts on Lake Winnebagoshish. But we couldn't do that. We had way too many schedules. So we were like, well, the average ice out date for Lake Winnebago. And, and why is that ideal? Well, uh, you can't go through the, until it melts, you just can't move. And then if you wait any longer, you're not going to have as good a water levels on average, and it's going to be way too hot down south. So so the absolute best time to go is the day after the ice melts on Lake Winnebago. And the average ice out date is like April 23rd. So we set our date May 4th, 90% chance ice will be out. May 4th comes, totally socked in, completely frozen, all three lakes. 
it's like 70 degrees at my uncle's cabin. His cabin is up there. The whole support crew gathered there. The big lake that his cabin is on, totally frozen. So we were going to gather at the end of April. And then we we're like, well, let's go up there on the 4th. Everything's still frozen on the 4th. And we cannot wait. We cannot wait past the 10th. Like, it just won't work. May 9th, we're like, okay, we got to go. We drive to Itasca. We do a pit stop on the way at Winnebagoshish. We put the canoe in, paddle out, ice, ice. And my buddy Judd is like, I think we will be able to paddle through this ice. It's melting. It's only like four inches, four to six inches deep. It's, you know, it's honeycombing. It's supposed to be nice for the next 24 hours. Hopefully it'll shift and move and we'll be able to paddle around it or we'll be able to paddle through it or it will melt. And thank God it, it melted. Like by the time we got there, it was gone which was just amazing. But then we get to Lake Winnebagoshish and we had a support boat there. My, my buddy, Sean Wookie Walksmith met us at midnight in his boat. And it's like a four hour crossing. And we got the documentary film crew in his boat. These two, this two young couple, this young couple from Montana is filming us and they've got spotlights on us and we're just having a great time. The water's glass. We get two thirds of the way across it. The wind kicks up. We're, we're all having a great time. Suddenly, no one is having fun. Everyone is dialed in. We got water coming over the gunnels into the boat. And we start being like, why isn't the support boat by us? Well, he had a depth finder and he knew we were in shallow water, so he couldn't get close to us. And the water, the ice melted the day before. So if we go in that lake, like, this is serious. Like, we've got one foot surf. We got white caps and we are paddling as hard as we can. It's like five in the morning. Just, you know, and like, was it that dangerous? Well, our boat's very stable. It's very unlikely we're going to flip this thing over on the one hand. On the other hand, we're shipping a little bit of water over the gunnels. You know, everybody is like, it's like whenever whenever the 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 danger rises from like a one or a two on a scale of one to 10 to a three or a four, it's like, you know what? We're not at a seven yet. Like we'll be fine, but it's just the stress of being at a three or four. Like, yeah, we're getting closer to like something bad happening, you know? So that stress was there. There right. was something like every day, like barge wakes and, wing dams and just things that would ratchet that stress level up, or we're spending a little too much time on shore, whatever it is, you know. What are the unique challenges of a river like this? I think you just mentioned a few, but what were, what are some of the things that you're, you know, there's always those dangers that people throw out there with anything that you do like, Oh, you got to watch out for bears when you're, you know, biking across, Yukon or something, but really it's the vehicles that are the most, uh, you know, the, the biggest danger. What, what was that here on the Mississippi? People would warn you about something, but what's really the danger? Well, I mean, by far and away, the most dangerous thing is not even close is barges, especially because you're out there at night. I mean, the average person without any experience probably shouldn't paddle on the Mississippi South of Minneapolis at any time, day or night, right? Until they get some experience and learn how to deal with barges. But then, then you especially shouldn't be out there at night. And that's why we had safety boats. We had pra- we practiced a bunch. We had lights and things. But it's still, I mean, you've got these barges and each tug or each tow is pushing, especially in the lower river, these hoppers uh, are filled with like the equivalent of 90 semi-trucks worth of grain or rock or gravel or whatever it is they're pushing. And they might have, they might have 56 hoppers they're pushing. It's almost a half mile long. Right. And at night you're looking at these lights coming and it's like a, it's like a train on the water. Yeah. Except that it's moving way slower and cannot, yeah, I can't get out of your way. So it's like a train like that. Like you have to get out of their way and you're looking at these lights at night and you, it took me until this attempt 
even for the whole 2021 attempt, I didn't always really understand what I was seeing at night. Like now I can tell you, you put me out there at 3 a.m. on the river, I'll tell you that's their port light on the bow. That's their starboard light on the bow and that's their stern light. And that means it's this long. It means it's this far away from us. And we should, and I'm looking at the nav tab and I see we've got real estate outside the shipping channel on the west side. So tell them we're going to pass them on the ones, call them and tell them. And there's all this barge language you have to learn, like we're going to pass you on the greens. We're going to pass you on the ones, which means you're going to pass port to port versus starboard to starboard. And you got to negotiate with them sometimes it's, and then they, and then after you miss the barge, they kick up, they disturb the, the river so much that you've got like a washing machine for an hour after they pass. And, and if another one comes, another one comes, it just makes it even more. So now you've got two, three foot waves crashing over the front of your canoe. We had a hard deck this time on the front of our canoe that would kind of shed the, shed the waves. And beyond that, we had a soft deck made out of fabric that could shed the waves. Plus we had the bilge pump, but like, that, you know, that's all just crazy. But like in 2021, we hit a, we hit some rebar going into a place to stop in Iowa. And at midnight, I'm going down to sleep in the canoe. And all of a sudden I'm like, guys, it's wetter than usual in here. I'm about to be underwater here. Oh, there's a one foot seam in the canoe that we need to patch. But get the support boat over. Okay, I got the waterproof patching tape. Adam's telling me how to put it in. My, my buddy in 2021, or my teammate who's an expert at that, he's like, here's how you put the tape on. I put the tape on it's, I can barely see it so dark. I've got my headlamp on. I bail the water out and go to sleep, you know? And another time we hit a rock North of the Twin Cities, flipped the boat over, spent an hour on shore. We're wearing all the support crews clothes because all our clothes are wet. And then in Vicksburg, the first attempt, the big waves, I mean, they're, so anyway, I'm going on and on, but there's, there's, and then there's the sock rapids in St. Cloud and there's the chain of rocks rapids in St. Louis. So you have to know how to do white water to some degree as well. I mean, it's like endless, the number of, crazy things you'll encounter. <laughs> <laughs> How much of it did you have ready to go versus having to learn as you go? No, knowledge wise. It was a five-year project. So we learned throughout that whole thing. So we were pretty experienced and pretty well, well, well ready to go. We, we never flipped the boat over. We never sank the boat this time. We also were lucky with incredibly good conditions. We had extremely high water for the first half of the trip. And then like in 2003, they got a big push from the Ohio. When the Ohio comes in, it doubles the size of the river. We didn't get that. So we built our lead in the first half and then we just played defense and, and you know, maintained. We didn't grow our lead, but we didn't shrink it for the whole second half of the trip. You know, there was so much to figure out about how to get, you know, the first trip we were communicating with the support boat via uh, little walkie talkies. This time we're like, no, we're just going to use the Marine radio. And we'll just have it on a different channel than the barges are on. And that works better. You know, th those are little things that just takes a long time to learn. How are we communicating? How are we navigating? My goodness, what an amazing adventure. So, so sleeping in the boat, being in the water, spending as little time on shore as possible. How were your bodies holding up to being wet so constantly? What, what were you doing or what had you learned to deal with that? And uh, how were you holding up? You know, all of our bodies held up pretty well. I mean, that's the thing. Like people have described this as doing like, you know, multiple marathons a day, but it's not true. I mean, my heart rate, my average heart rate was probably in the one tens while I was paddling because I'm sitting down, the current's pushing me. You know, if you're in a two mile canoe race or a 10 mile canoe race, you're paddling your ass off. But if you're going 2,300 miles, it's more about being in sync 
being together with your teammates and just staying at it, just staying at it and keeping the mental game on, just not going crazy, you know, not losing it. So, and we, we weren't actually all that wet because unlike kayaking, you know, you get pretty wet kayaking, but in this canoe with this cover on it, we stayed pretty dry. We got blisters on our hands and we had to deal with that. And then, you know, at various points in North, in Minnesota, you're dealing with the cold and then you get down South, you're dealing with the heat. So you, you just can't make any mistakes. Like you have to put suntan lotion on every few hours and just cake it on and move on. And you got it. If you don't eat and if you don't stay hydrated, you know, you, you can't have these unforced errors where suddenly you're, you're in heat stroke or you're in dehydration or you've got bad sunburn. So you just, it's all these maintenance things, all these logistics. I can imagine. Cause you could, you know, miss one of those intervals or those, you know, sunscreen application times and, you know, all of a sudden you're burnt and it, it can just really throw everything off and kind of put you in a really bad place uh, that just continues to get worse and worse. This is a long enough experience that it's just, you know, it's a massive journey. Uh, you have a lot of days out there. W what's something you grew to look forward to? Was it the meals? Was it sunrise or sunset? Like what, what were you kind of, what was, what were you looking forward to every day? I just, I mean, this sounds cheesy, but I loved every second of it. I just loved every second of it. I, I don't think I looked forward to anything in particular. I mean, of course, the sunrise is always a huge, a huge boost. Um, but I love my teammates. You know, I, I kind of liked the paddling at night because eventually it would just be me and one other guy at night. And it, it ended up that it, that was a different guy at different times. And so you'd have more of a, you know, more of a conversation with just two guys instead of four guys. So you could get into it a little more. And, um, I remember one time in Iowa, Paul and I were paddling and, you know, our Facebook page, it just so happens that like the most people that follow our Facebook page are like women in their sixties or seventies or something. And, you know, the weird conversations you have at midnight, <laughs> we're like in the middle of Iowa. And somehow we start joking about how there's going to be a wildlife refuge around the next corner filled with white women in their sixties. Right. And we, we were laughing so hard that Judd said he woke up to see what was going on. And he said the canoe was just spinning. And the two of us were like hunched over, not paddling at all. And just tears streaming down our eyes because we were laughing so hard. So it was, it was, I look forward to those conversations with my, with my teammates at night. Just, you, you start getting <laughs> uh, a little loopy. Oh yeah. And uh, have some fun. And are we skipping over anything like at this point in the middle of the trip, whether it be planning or prep or just something fascinating part about the beginning that we haven't talked about? I mean, the one, one thing that comes to mind is early on in 2018, when I was getting all this together, it was like, okay, I need a support crew leader. How am I going to find a support crew leader? And the way I found a lot of the support crew people was through, you know, the scout camp alumni network I worked at and just through putting it online in different paddling forums and things, you know, I put together a thing like, Hey, we're looking for a support crew leader. And it just so happened that my wife's uncle, who I didn't know all that well, you know, he was in great shape. He had retired relatively young and he like wrote up this whole resume about like why I should pick him. And it was, I was like, it was hilarious. I mean, there's nobody else applying for this. Yes. Come work for hundreds of hours for free you know, handling our feces filled bags and disgusting clothing and make food for us, you know, and then he ended up supporting us for the Alabama 650 for the Missouri River 340 and on like over a dozen training trips over five years. And actually after the 2021 attempt, we met in a bar three weeks later and he knew I was going to ask him to do it again in 2023. And I didn't even know this until a few months ago. He told his wife, 
I'm going to meet with Scott. I'm sure he's going to ask me to do it again. And I'm telling him, no, it's going to be hard. And he gets home and she says, Joey says to, to her husband, Moose, she says, so how'd it go? You know, did he take it? Okay. And he goes, yeah, I couldn't do it. And I never knew this. Cause when I asked him, he just goes, yeah, I'm in. Like he came to the bar going to say no, but then he couldn't say no. And he, thank God, because he had learned so much. I mean, he was like an expert support crew leader for this kind of thing. And thank God, you know, he learned and I learned through over five years and that made, made all the difference. It's the power of, of having a big idea. Exactly. And, 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 and how it attracts folks, you know, this is, this is such a, it's just fascinating because because a lot of our trips, a lot of times we talk about in this show, it's you know it's a solo experience. Someone's out for a month or a few weeks or, or something, but a lot of times it is, you know, an isolated experience. Logistically, it's a lot easier in that sense. This is so much coordination and uh, the the ability to maintain this level of of organization and coordination and excitement over the course of five years is pretty, pretty impressive. Not going to lie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I guess the other thing is you asked about training and um, in addition to the training trips that we took, you know, the first team I was with, we ended up all of us uh, except, well, all of us ended up getting rowing machines. I still have a rowing machine in my basement with a canoe paddle adapter. So I could, I could paddle my canoe in the winter in my basement. And I also got a solo canoe from Winona, who also made the Minnesota Four, the canoe that we took. Uh, and I would take, it was a great COVID activity. I would go to pool one, eight blocks east of my house. I'd put my Voyager in there and I'd just paddle for one, two, three, four, five hours, upstream, downstream, nothing better than training going up against the current to build strength and endurance. Um, so there was a lot of solo training and then there was the team training too. So, so how did the river and the challenge change as you got closer to Louisiana? You know, of course you mentioned south of Minneapolis, the, the barges started coming into play and I'm sure just, you know, the frequency and maybe even the size of those continued to increase the closer you got to the ocean. Um, what else were you noticing as far as how the adventure was adapting as you went? Well, the crazy thing is, is once the Ohio comes in, you've got a thousand miles left and some people claim, I don't know if this is true, but it might be true that the last thousand miles of the Mississippi, wrap your head around this, might be the largest wilderness in the lower 48. How could that be? Well, it's a thousand miles long. It's up to 77 miles wide between the levees. And the the, the water level in an average year in the Mississippi River down south of the Ohio, fluctuates as much as 40 to 65 feet up and down. So you got all this lowland, scrubland, islands, back channels, 77 miles wide, 1,000 miles long. I guess maybe it is the largest wilderness in the lower 48, right? So, And you're paddling in the middle of it, and mostly it looks wild. Mostly all you're seeing is water, sky, and trees until the next huge industrial barge comes. Like it's, it's, it's ironic that it's a wilderness with this commercial highway down the middle of it. And then this year, since we didn't have great water levels, I really got to notice in that lower river, you've got these massive sandbars when the water's a little lower, like mile, two, one, two, three mile long sandbars. And you kind of get this natural pools developing and then it narrows into these chutes. And it was hard to find places to meet up with the support crew. Like they had to do a lot of work, especially some places in Arkansas and Mississippi. It's like over a hundred miles between bridges and there's not a lot of ramps for access and the river's just so big and they would drive down over the levee and they'd have to drive 20 miles on dirt roads just to get to the river to 
resupply us. Jeez. Just crazy. And then you get to Baton Rouge, you've got over 200 miles left. And now the shipping channel, instead of being nine foot deep, is kept at almost 50 feet deep. And you literally have ocean going vessels coming up from the ocean as far north as Baton Rouge. Thankfully, the ocean going vessels, they look terrifying, but they're actually not as scary as the barges. They're, they're, not, they're not as loud and they, I don't know, they don't throw up as much of a wake except that we heard later from one of the captains down there that had we come through Baton Rouge one hour later, there was a fully loaded container ship that launched off the shore an hour after we passed. And apparently everybody on the river, all the barge captains and boat captains know when a fully loaded container ship launches, they just get ready to rescue all the small boats, any paddlers, any even small boats with engines just flip right over because it pushes up such a massive wave. So we were lucky to miss that. Then between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, you've got Cancer Alley, which is just chemical plants and oil refineries and smokestacks and fires in the sky, and it smells bad, and it's creepy and weird. And we actually ended up organizing, organizing, asking for help, and we got these local captains to come join our support crew to help navigate through all this crazy industry and crazy number of barges, especially after being scarred in 2021 and you know sinking in New Orleans. And then finally you get through New Orleans and you're in the Delta and it's just wilderness again. And it's peaceful and quiet. And it's, you know, you can hear cows 10 miles away. They're echoing over the water. And then I just got to say one more story here, which is our support crew. By this time, we're nearing mile marker zero, hundred miles South of New Orleans. And they're like, we, we can't drive the last 10 miles. Like there's no road. The farthest south we can get is Venice. And then mile marker zero is 10 miles beyond that. So they're trying to charter a boat to be with us for the last 10 miles. And they're like, no boats available. It's the first day of red snapper season. Every boat is chartered. You guys are out of luck. But then all the fishermen caught their limits within the first few hours of the day. And we weren't getting there till the evening. So they did charter a boat. So at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, as we're 10 miles out, all of a sudden there's a boat that we can't see, but we can hear filled with 45 friends and family members screaming, yelling, and cheering us for the whole last 10 miles, which we got to this rickety tower way out, you know, basically in the Gulf of Mexico at 2.16 in the morning and they shine their floodlights and we pull our canoe up and we climb up and everybody's worried because we're all completely blotto in terms of any energy and sleep. And we're climbing up this rickety tower and everyone's screaming, yelling, we get on top and we cheer and we put our names in this little book that this guy named Joey Cargo put up there for people that paddled the whole river to put their names in. And it was such a way more spectacular ending than I had ever imagined. I think it was heightened, you know, obviously by having all those people there, but then the fact that it was 2.17 in the morning too, just crazy. You know, yeah, I was going to ask, like, where does it end? You know what I mean? It's 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 hard to know, but but they have a mile marker that just kind of signifies, hey, this is the this is the end of the river. Well, the, the Army Corps maintains, you know, very specific charts, and they have everything marked out with mile markers. And as you go down the river, you can see the mile markers. And so, mile marker zero technically is at what they call the head of passes. And at that place, at the head of passes, there's like four different channels to the Gulf ranging from like, I want to say three to 10 miles long. And one of them is the main shipping channel. A lot of people that are doing a source to sea trip on the Mississippi, some people will end at mile marker zero. Some people will paddle out to the actual Gulf. We thought about that, but we were so exhausted and it was 2.17 a.m. And, you know, the support crew had rented this place called the Salty Marsh Flotel in Venice. It's like this floating hotel for hunters and stuff. And so 
after we celebrated there, we jumped on the boats and through the black night, you know, through the wide Mississippi with all these weird lights and weird barges, go all the way back to Venice and then crash at this amazing floating hotel. It was, it was awesome. What an experience. What an unbelievable experience. So I've always heard that, you know, just the eddies and the, the, the currents and the churning of the water in the South Mississippi is so dangerous and so easy to get sucked in. Is that, is that true? Or is that kind of urban legend? It's completely true, especially in higher water, because there's literally thousands of wing dams that humans have put there, the Army Corps has put there, to shunt the water into the shipping channel to maintain that nine-foot depth. And so depending on the water levels, it's interesting. In low water, all the barges going upstream and downstream, they're going to be right in the shipping channel because it's the only place that's deep enough. And if they were out of the shipping channel, they'd hit the wing dams. But when the water gets high enough, and it's over the top of the wing dams, then if they're coming upstream, they don't want to fight all that current. They don't want to burn all that gas. So they'll move out of the channel and they'll be floating right over the wing dams, which is terrifying for a canoe coming downstream because you think I'm out of the shipping channel. I'm out of their way. Oh no, I'm not. There they are. And now if you, if you meet an, a southbound and a northbound barge at the same time, even though the river's massive, it can start to feel pretty congested in a hurry. And especially in high water, like in 2021, the, the team that Bobby was on and KJ and, and Casey and Rod, they set the record. There's a, a book that Rod wrote about, their, wrote about their journey. And he talks about a massive whirlpool that very nearly sinks them. Mm. And one advantage we had is we had worked with a guy who made an app for people doing the Missouri River 340 race that shows them the shipping channel and keeps them in the shipping channel. And we worked with him to make the equivalent for the Mississippi. So that's something we had, and I don't believe they had it. And that meant that we could stay in the shipping channel and not get close to a wing dam because the whirlpools often form right off the end of a wing dam. So the best way to avoid the whirlpool is just to stay right in the shipping channel and never get anywhere near it. But you can't always do that at night. You can't see. And if a barge comes, you got to get out of the shipping channel. So you can get sucked in a whirlpool. In fact, I think one of the attempts early part of the 19th century, you can read about this online. I think one, at least one of the attempts ended because they got sucked in a whirlpool and somebody might've even lost their life in a whirlpool. So yeah, it's, it's uh, the currents are crazy. That's uh, that's terrifying yeah. to be honest. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about geography and whatnot. And the Mississippi comes up a lot as far as just something that makes America, America. I mentioned that earlier in the episode what did you learn about the impact the Mississippi has on our country, on uh, the economy, and also just the environment? You know, what, what, what was some of the realizations doing the whole thing versus when you were getting prepared for it? Yeah, I mean, if you read Huck Finn, you know, and you think of old Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, you know, you think of the wild Mississippi and the amazing stories that are in that book. And that is not entirely lost the river still feels pretty wild, even though it's been, you know, heavily shackled and heavily straitjacketed to provide for these barges. But it's like something like, I want to say like 90% of our exports and grain or whatever come through the Mississippi River or down the Mississippi River. So it's, you know, these 29 lock and dams that kind of belt the river between St. Paul and St. Louis um, make these pools and it's all maintained for navigation for these barges. And then once you get through St. Louis, it's just wide open, you know? Um, 
but all that infrastructure, billions of dollars of infrastructure, but you can see why efficiency wise, if one barge holds the equivalent grain of 90 semi trucks, like it's very efficient and you've got the current helping push you, especially when you go downstream, obviously when you go upstream, it requires more, more diesel fuel or whatever, but it is a very efficient system and it moves however many, you know, billions of bushels of grain and other commodities out of the heartland of the U.S. and, and bringing stuff in too. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And when you get to learn how the barge captains talk and you get to learn how to talk to them and it's a dangerous job, but they also get to see all the beautiful sunsets and sunrises and all the amazing sights on the river. Um, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I guess that's the thing. It's like, both the combination of the fact that it's very developed and it's not a wild river anymore. And yet it's still a place for huge adventure and still feels very wild in many ways. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird dichotomy that way. Can you touch on 2021? You made it almost to the end, but what happened? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, I mean, we had our rival team and they thought they would get an advantage over us by leaving two weeks earlier. They were a little more flexible and they did. So they had better water levels in Minnesota. So the one thing that I don't know that they thought of is that we would have access to all their GPS data. So we could see how much time they were staying on shore. So even though I don't think we were any faster than them on the water, we quickly realized they're spending like, two hours on shore a day, we can make up time there. But by the time we got to Iowa, we were like seven hours behind them. And our strategy was to just have one guy go down every three hours to sleep. And by the time we got to Iowa, we were all so sleep deprived. Joel Ford, who was on the team and has an adventure racing background, I was just gone. I mean, I was worthless. I was shot mentally, physically, I was shot. And we'd had problems with our rudder. We had problems with headwinds. We had, the rudder pedals were breaking, the cables were breaking. It was just stressful. And, and it's so stressful when you're behind, you know, which we didn't have to deal with in 2023. We were ahead the whole way, which was nice. But in 2021, we're seven hours behind. And Joel says, here's the deal, guys. I've been thinking about this. I think we need to sleep more. And I think we need to get more sleep at night. So at night, let's have two guys go down for four hours and the other two guys for the second hours. And we'll all get four hours of sleep at night. And then during the day, we can just have one guy go down for 12 hours, you know, one guy every four hours. Okay, well, let's try it. And we started gaining two hours on them every day as soon as we did that. So even though we had fewer paddles in the water because we had a higher quality paddles, like we were more awake, more alert, more strong, we started gaining on them. And by the time we got to Louisiana, we had a, uh, I think we had a, I think in Iowa, we were behind five hours. We got to Louisiana, we had a seven hour lead, but there was a tropical disturbance in the Gulf. And there was literally like flooding happening in different parts of Louisiana, like sheets and sheets and inches and inches of rain, some of which hit us. And it was, it was impressive, but it wasn't just the rain. It was like 30 mile an hour headwinds. So our leads dropping from seven to six to five to four. And we get to new Orleans, it's almost midnight. And the waves are so bad. 24 hours behind before this happened, approximately, I pulled Moose aside on shore. He was he was in my face. You guys, you're so close. You just got to stick with it. You just got to get out there. And I pulled him. And I, I'm not this kind of person. But I pulled him over, grabbed his jacket, and I said, Moose, just make sure they're ready to rescue us because we're going down. 
and the guys in the canoe with me, they were like possessed. I, I kind of knew on some level, we didn't have a shot at this point. The conditions were so bad. I mean, these 30 mile an hour headwinds, huge waves, and it was just terrifying. And then finally we get close to New Orleans. Everybody's completely destroyed sleep-wise, physically, mental, and we're pulling out all the stops. No one's sleeping. It's just like going for broke, but we still got over a hundred miles to go. And just past midnight, the conditions were so bad. The waves were coming in. There's, there's barges and ocean going vessels everywhere, chemical dock lights and huge waves. And Perry's like, guys, the canoe's filling up with water. We have to call the safety boat over right now. So we do. And this 25 trailer boat, 25 foot trailerable houseboat comes alongside us. We grab hold and it's rising up on the waves and it's listing over the top of us. The cabin is like over the top of us. And then it's diving down into the troughs, threatening to wrench our arms off. And half the guys are like, if we don't let go of this boat right now, we are going to die. And the other half guys are like, if we let go of this boat, we're going to die. So then everyone's screaming and yelling, trying to hear each other, trying to figure out what to do. And the canoe literally sinks out from under us. We dive onto this boat, which is now severely overloaded. The three guys that were on it and all the equipment to that, we now add the four of us. The canoe goes spinning off in the dark waves. Someone's like, we got to get that canoe. I'm like, there is no way. I mean, we are in a fight for our lives on this houseboat right now. Don't worry about the canoe. And then the houseboat is captained by a guy who drove big ships all over the world through the oceans. And I can hear him revving up the waves and then cresting down into the troughs. And the nearest boat ramp is 10 miles away. He's just trying to get to shore at this point before we capsize in this boat. And somehow, I don't know, I still to this day, I'm not sure how, if he was on the radio or what, but he finds a little strip of sand next to an alligator filled swamp in between all the chemical docks. And he ditches there and we spend the night there getting rammed by waves. And this local Cajun guy, Joey Cargill, who's like works on the big ships down there, captains the big ships, but also paddled the whole river solo himself. So he's like a river angel, just like trail angels on the Appalachian Trail. There's river angels. He he like tells Scott Mansker, hey, hike through the swamp. I'll tell you how to get here. And then there's a canal, but I'm going to chuck you some beers over the canal. And like he chucks like 24 glass bottles most of which broke. And then he chucks like a huge thing of whiskey, which also shattered. And Manster comes back with a few beers. I'm passed out in the boat. Everybody makes it through the night. And the next morning we finally get to the ramp and back to civilization. But it was, uh, it was a harrowing end. So the canoe is just gone. So the canoe continues downstream on its own. And like a day later, or maybe two days, Joey calls me up. We're all staying at a hotel in New Orleans. And he's like, dude, I know where your canoe is. And this is a guy, Joey Cargill, if you bring your ocean-going vessel to the mouth of the Mississippi River, he's one of the guys you have to turn your keys over and relinquish control of your ship because he's an expert at bringing your ocean-going vessel up the Mississippi to New Orleans or to Baton Rouge. And he makes good money, and he's an incredibly generous guy. And so he's like, we're going to go get your canoe. Meet me here. So my buddy Todd and I, we go to the river, and he's like, he is like commandeered some like 100-foot ship because he knows everybody down there. And I see him passing out $100 bills, just like making stuff happen. And he's like, detour, guys, we're going to stop by this crawfish boil. And we pull over to these dock workers and they like have this huge thing full of gumbo and crawfish and corn and sausage. He's like, you guys got to try this. And then we go and there's our canoe wrapped around a pylon of a chemical dock. And he's like, we don't really have permission to be here. And I I really don't get along with this company, but we'll just kind of duck in there quick. And he's leaning off the top of the this barge, he's leaning off this boat we're in, trying to wrestle my canoe off of this pylon, and we're holding on to his belt loops, and he almost fell in, and he wasn't wearing a life jacket. 
Finally, he gets it free and it floats down a little further. We, he, he wasn't able to grab it and it gets stuck on another pylon and we had to give up. And then like three days later, he's like, calls me up. He's like, Scott, I got your canoe. I'm like, what do you mean you got my canoe? He's like, yeah, somebody saw it and they called me. And this is like 50 miles from where we lost it. So I got a boat. I went down there. I stopped. And then I swam out in the river and I retrieved your canoe. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And so then one of the people on our support crew was still down there, Megan Boudreau. She drives the canoe back to Minnesota for me. And I get it. And I was like, this was stupid that I had you do this because it was totally trashed. It was like bent in like 15 places. It was, there was no way to rehab this canoe. So I, I felt bad. I had to drive it all the way back to Minnesota, but. Jeez. Was there uh, <laughs> I mean, when you jumped off and got on that houseboat, was there anything in the canoe that, you know, just was lost at that point, you know, like your stuff or were you able to get that on the boat? We all lost a couple things, a couple dry bags and we lost our GPS. The canoe had most was mostly empty at that point. Cause we were going for broke and, my teammates in a frenzy at one point, they had a love-hate relationship with the canoe cover because people felt like you were entombing yourself under this cover when you would go to sleep and you would zip it over you. You know, it was kind of like, hey, if we flip over, I'm probably going to die here. And, you know, we had, we we knew that the bow and sternsman would try to rip it off and get you out of there. But it was, you know, if you're claustrophobia, phobic at all. It, it, it is, cool. yeah, unsettling for sure. Yeah. At some point with the inches and inches of rain and stuff, we'd ripped the whole cover off the canoe. And so the water was just coming in, but we could bail it out more easily. And, and we just went down to bare bones and it was hot enough. You know, we pretty much just had the clothes on us and some food and water, a couple of personal items and dry bags. So we definitely lost some stuff, including the GPS. But um, fortunately, we, most of the stuff we, we recovered or didn't have in the boat to begin with, I guess. After all that, you wanted to do this again, <laughs> two years later. You know, it's, it's funny because I... I mean, I was talking about going again, even at the hotel in New Orleans. And my teammates looked at me like I was totally crazy. You know, <laughs> It but was a I different enough, team too, right? It was a different team this year than then. Yeah, I ended up getting, because I had met these guys doing these long distance canoe races and they, they couldn't join me in 2021 because they didn't have enough notice. But now I had some cred, you know, and, and it was two years out. So they, they said they would join me. Were you also on track for the record in 2021? Yeah. So, I mean, when we got to Louisiana, we had a seven hour lead. And then by the time we got to New Orleans, that was down to zero. We were essentially tied, but with not much optimism on the horizon, the conditions were so bad. So even if it hadn't, even if we hadn't sunk there, I don't think we could have beat the record. The conditions were just too bad. Gosh, that had to be frustrating getting that far and not being able to to complete it. So this, this second time, w did you know, w w when was it clear you had the record? Did you have kind of a lead the whole time and it felt like, all right, we just got to maintain this? Because you say the lead, you mean just ahead of the record itself. The pace, yeah, the pace, yeah, the, the pace. record pace. Yep. So, I mean, we, we've had like a 20 to 30 hour lead already in Iowa, depending on where we were in Iowa, I think, or at least into Missouri, I think over 30 hours at one point. So it was like, but the, the, the problem is, is I knew all that could go to hell at any second. Like all it takes is one. Yeah, something like that happens. Yeah. No lead is safe. No lead is safe. And in fact, on the lower river, it was never our intention to sleep on shore, but we had the safety incident lock 15. We spent four hours on shore and then it ended up that three other nights in the middle of the night, we spent between three and four hours on shore because everybody was so shot, including the guys on the support crew that they were like, Hey, we got five barges coming and we just can't, we, we just can't deal. Like, it's just too dangerous. It's too complicated. 
We just need to pull over and rest. And Scott Mansker really convinced us of that. And it's like, well, okay, we've got a 22 hour lead. Yeah, let's do it. And so could someone else set this record? I think yes, but on a luck scale of one to 10, I mean, we were like at eight out of 10 luck wise. We had incredible weather, incredible water levels. So they'd have to get really lucky. Plus they'd have to be really fast. But, you know, we did spend like probably 16 hours on shore that we weren't anticipating. Now, does that mean had we stayed in the water, we could have beat the record by 16 additional hours? Probably not because by going to shore, we recuperated mentally and physically, you know, all that. So hard to say. That is wild. So when, when did you know, when did it start to sink in and when did you start letting yourself build, uh, build hope, get, get, get your hopes up that you're going to, you're going to secure this record. Never, ever, never, ever, never, any, ever. any wisp <laughs> of that. And my teammates would get on my, on my case immediately, like shut up right now. No, it wasn't a kind like you don't want to jinx it. Right. And, and then like, for example, Rod and Bobby KJ and Casey's team in 2021 in, in Rod's book and stuff, as you get down towards mile marker zero, there are outflow channels coming off the river. And if you get too close to them, they will literally suck you in and push you out into the Gulf and take you out of the river. And they fell into one where duck hunters have died and they got a surge of adrenaline. Joey Cargo was with them in a safety boat. And he's like, oh, they're done. They are done. They're going to be lucky to stay alive. Through a huge surge of adrenaline, they paddled back up the gradient, back up into the river. And then, and this is just like 10 or 20 miles from the end, they got sucked back down again and paddled back up into the river again at night. I think it was at night. It might have, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But so, so we get towards the end and we've got these experienced captains with us and we're like, hey, keep us away from the outflow channels, please. And they're like, okay, no problem. Yep. Make sure you're over here. Make sure you're over here. But we're still dodging barges. And then it's just stressful. Like we have this image in our head, we could get sucked into an outflow channel five miles from the end and lose our lives or at the very least not make the record. So like there was no celebrating early. Unbelievable. Well, tell us the feeling of, of, of getting there. Did it, did it take, did it just feel surreal? Did it take a while to sink in? I mean, that must've been after all the five years of planning and prep and all the, all the things that could have gone wrong the whole time the challenges, the the obstacles you faced. What what was that feeling of of hitting mile marker zero? You know what? It was totally awesome, but it was also stressful because we had gotten word through the Star Tribune, the local paper in Minnesota, that somebody was going to challenge the record because the support boat had helped us at Lock 15. They were going to put a challenge into Guinness and say, hey, I don't think they meet, meet all the rules. Now, I knew that the rules said we can grab hold of the support boat all we want if we're stationary or going upstream. They just can't propel us downstream, which makes sense, right? right. So I thought I thought we were going to be fine, but you know, some some press covered it, and it was like totally awesome. But it wasn't until July, when Guinness finally certified it, that I realized, oh, I have been stressed out about this since midway through since lock fifteen. So even though there was a huge celebration at the end, and it was totally awesome. Not until July was I like, oh, okay, now we did it. It's Guinness official. And then we had a bunch more media interest. And it was like, oh, everybody was kind of waiting for this to be Guinness official. Like that Guinness name is, that was the whole point was to set the Guinness world record. So until Guinness made it official, we like, couldn't fully relax, couldn't fully celebrate. And that's a long time to wait because the you actually finished on what day? May 26th, I think. Or maybe it was the morning of May 27th. I can never remember. We wouldn't have had to wait that long if I had put together the application process more quickly. But 
you know, because there was this threat to our record attempt and because that maybe there was going to be this complaint lodged with Guinness, I had to make sure to cross every T and dot every I and they want, they want your full GPS track. They want witness statements. They want statements from your support crew. You know, they want pictures, they want video. And so I'm putting all this together and, and just sweating it, you know, and working, working, working to get it all ship shaped. And, uh, and then I submitted it and they pushed back and had a few questions on things and I'm like sweating bullets. And then I pushed, you know, I sent it all back in and finally they, uh, they certified it. Gosh, that had to be a great feeling. Yeah, that was really awesome. When you were finished with the adventure, what was something uh, you missed that you were looking forward to to having, whether it be food or some sort of, uh, you know, creature comfort or an experience or just something, you know, sitting down in a different seat for, for once? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think... Um, uh, sleeping next to my wife was, was the best, the best thing <laughs> versus a, a fetid pool of water in the bottom of the canoe. <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing is, is it was so fun to eat. You know, we ate some healthy food, but we were also eating garbage, like whatever, whatever you can, you know, chocolate shakes, you know, candy. And we went out to eat in new Orleans and I got, I ordered a, a totally vegan meal from a Thai restaurant that was like spicy and had vegetables. And it was like nothing I'd eaten in three weeks. And it was so delicious. And it's not, I don't eat that way all the time, but, and then I got some like purple vegan ice cream thing for dessert. And it was like, you know, it was so exotic and foreign and different than the food we've been eating. So that was, that was pretty cool. Well, you've been talking about just how dang exciting this was and how, how, how much of a high it was. Something that we, you know, often talk about on the show is, is, you know, after a big adventure like this, there's all of a sudden this, this gap in your, in your soul, you just completed this, you got the record even, and it's, it's this thing that's been on the horizon for half a decade and now it's behind you. Um, what is that feeling like? And how, how have you been able to kind of cope with that being in the rear view mirror now? Yeah. I mean, you know, I listened to the podcast you did with Shelby Stanger, I think her name is, and she wrote the whole book on, on, uh, will to wild about what, will you know, adventuring wild. and what happens. And, and she talks openly. And I think you guys talked openly about how people often get depressed after a trip like this. And that certainly has been true for me. It's been a struggle. I mean, everyday normal life is a little bit of a struggle baseline. Anyway, I'd much rather have some big, fun, exciting adventure. It's like, you know, it's like kind of kind of thing where like, yeah, I can put together 55 details for an adventure, but get me to balance my checkbook or send in the bill or mow the lawn. It's like, <laughs> much harder, you know, or, or cook a good meal at home, you know. Um, oh, you're preaching to the choir, man. You're preaching. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't, can't even like, how do I, how can I do so much on this one hand and nothing on this other? It's crazy. Exactly. Exactly. So it has been a challenge, but the one saving grace is, I think two things. One, with these two paddles, canoe and kayak races that I organize with my best friends, it's like we still have to get ready for that next June. And we kind of work on that throughout the year. So it's fun to have that to look forward to. Yeah. And, um, and, al and almost like a, it's a way to take all that experience and that excitement and really pour it into these to get other people to you know, basically have that same feeling you do. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's like I had such a good time doing this. And you know, people talk about it's the journey, not the destination. And it's in a lot of ways, it's true. It's like, it was so fun doing all the planning and all the prepping and all the training trips and just having an excuse to get on the river all the time, 
either with other people or in my solo canoe. So to have all that apparatus and all that energy be over, it's tough. But I but I am very glad that we have those canoe races still because that, that's exactly right. And a lot of the volunteers that helped us with the Mississippi speed record are now helping us with the canoe races too, including my wife's uncle Moose. He ran the finish line for us. And so it's kind of like a little mini reunion and people come to paddle it too. Like Judd and his girlfriend, she ended up joining the support crew. This is one of my teammates. They came, even though it was just like two weeks after we finished, they came and did just the 10 mile race with their little dog and had a great time. And so as long as I can still have something to do with the river and paddling and if I can help more people to get out there and have an adventure, whether it's a three hour adventure or a multi-day adventure, you know, I just... There's something about being out on the river that is um, I want to share with as many people as I can. You do something like this. There is that pressure that you might, maybe it's, you know, a real pressure, just self-inflicted. It's what's next. And I don't have any expectations when I ask you this, but do you, what is next for you? If not anything, that's totally fine. But is there something on the horizon that's like, you know, now that I've done this, I'd love to try this. Or is it just too soon? You know, in 2005, my my buddy Todd convinced me to try to paddle from Minneapolis to Hudson Bay, which was a whole nother adventure. And we, we did it. Todd went the first third and then my friend Matt Lutz took over for the second third. But I was there the whole time. And that was an epic adventure. It took three and a half months. And at the time, I needed to have escapes from my regular life because I didn't like my regular life that much. Now I've got a wonderful wife. I've got a good job at the hospital. I'm a, a registered nurse on the oncology unit at the University of Minnesota Hospital. So I've got a, a nice life. I don't need adventure to escape from, but it's still still nice to have an adventurous life. So I don't have anything on deck other than the two paddles races. And there used to be a 450 mile race in, in the forties and fifties in Minnesota from Bemidji back to the cities called the Paul Bunyan Canoe Derby. And so, so we're just thinking like, oh, you know, if we get this paddle weekend going and if it's robust enough and it's, if we can make a little bit of money at it, which we haven't yet, but if we get there, if we can grow it, you know, then maybe we could add some other races. Maybe we could bring back the Paul Bunyan Canoe Derby. So it's, it's fun to think about that kind of stuff. I was also just talking to somebody like the solo male record for the Mississippi hasn't been established. So that's just sitting there waiting for someone to, to do that. And then the guys who set the record in 2003, after we, well, actually after KJ, KJ's team set the rec, beat their record in 2021, they appealed to Guinness and said, okay, fine, give them the record, but make a tandem record too and give that to us. So, they, so you know, I don't think I'm going to try to set the solo record or the tandem record, but you never say never. It's fun, it's fun to think about. You know? <laughs> never say never. Well, you know, there. if I can ask one more question, there is something that I'm often asked to spend a little more time on and you, and you brought it up. You're, you're a registered nurse. This is not your full-time job, you know, Mississippi paddler. Um, or even paddle trip planner, logistically with just balancing normal life, how, how did you make this happen? What were some of those, help demystify it for people. How do you take this much time off? How do you pay for it? You don't got to ha have to get in the details, but what, what was your situation? Well, I mean, I have so much respect for anybody who's a parent. I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. My wife and I do not have kids. And so obviously that makes a huge difference. Like if we had kids, I don't, I'm sure I couldn't have done this. So, so I, you know, rightly or wrongly or for better or for worse or however you want to think about it. I'm, I know that's, that's just real talk, right? That's a big factor is not having kids. But secondly, I mean, being a nurse, 
I'm also a massage therapist and have a little shop near my house, but I have a lot of flexibility in those two jobs. I set my own schedule at the massage shop. And then for the nursing job, I, I only work three days a week there and I can build up my time off and take it off. And we did do a lot of fundraising for this trip, uh, both the 2021 and the 2023 attempt and the power of social media. I mean, I'm somebody who looks at my phone way the heck too much. And I know that there's all kinds of terrible things about social media, but man, it can be used for good too. I mean, I never would have found my teammates, never would have found a lot of the support crew members and never would have been able to fundraise, you know, nearly as effectively without having all that. And then our Facebook page, that's how we went viral and we had live videos and we ended up having, you know, tens of thousands of people following along. And that, that, of course, that all helped with fundraising too. Scott, I, I, uh, I don't know, man. Being a being a massage therapist on an adventure is is probably a double edged sword. You know, just like ah, Scott, I got to really uh, my, my my shoulders a little tight. What can you do about that? I'm sure you were tapped on the shoulder quite a bit to to use your services and your skills to help the team uh, work through some of those muscular issues. Yeah, my teammates were awesome. They they didn't bother me about it, but I did. Once or twice, I stood up in the stern and the guy in seat three, and I just leaned over on him with my elbow and for one or two minutes, just uh, worked on him just a little bit, you know, as a way to like, you know, I mean, it was, it was stressful and it was hard. So just as a concrete way to be like, Hey, I'm here for you, man. You know, those kinds of gestures go a long way, but geez, anything else you want to share with folks, you know, as we wrap up, uh, about just going after big, crazy ideas. I mean, it may, maybe folks don't have this kind of aspiration and, and are willing to do what you did, but, uh, you know, going after their own Mississippi. You know, my buddy, Todd, he's the one that came up with the idea to paddle to Hudson Bay in 2005. And I thought he was insane. I mean, I, I thought there's no way that I can do that. I can't take three and a half months out of my life. I, there, there's a million things that could go, like, there's just no way. But I thought about it and I was like, yeah, you only live once and I am independently poor and, you know, we're just in our twenties and, and it was like, once you make the decision, it's like, there is 10,000 things to do and 10,000 steps to take. You can't even think of them all, but the crucial thing is making the decision. Like you make the decision and then every, all the energy starts organizing in that direction and your brain changes and the community changes and everything starts helping you to fulfill this big goal. And so in 2018, when I, I watched a Facebook live video of these three guys trying to set the record, including KJ Milhone, he was on that team, you know, and I was just inspired and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I think we all have those thoughts, like that would be fun to do. And it's easy to dismiss right away. Like I did in 2005, but I had learned from my buddy Todd and from that experience, like, wait, hold on to that thought, hold on to that. That makes your heart sing. That makes your soul sing. You know, maybe you could actually do that. Maybe you could actually do that, you know? I love that advice. And not going to lie, that sounds like a, a, another episode of the show right there. I, I, I've never heard of anything like that. I don't even know how that's possible to get to the Hudson. I guess upstream through a lot of lot of uh, waterways. And that's that sounds amazing. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you very briefly, the, the thing that happened is Todd and I were running a winter camp for the scouts and we had a winter explorers theme. And he went to the library and he was in the explorers section and he saw this book called Canoeing with the Cree by Eric Severide. And he checked it out and he read it really quickly. And it turns out it's this book that's kind of famous in Minnesota paddling circles that neither of us had ever heard of. And it turns out Eric Severide was a newscaster in the 40s and 50s for CBS. 
famous guy. But in when he graduated from high school in Minneapolis in 1934 or 35, him and his buddy, they looked and they were like, hey, we know you can take the Mississippi, but look at this. If you go up the Minnesota River, down the Red River, across Lake Winnipeg and on this rapids filled wilderness river, you could go to Hudson Bay. You could finish the bisecting of the continent. And they convinced the local paper to, to sponsor them. And then they had this incredible adventure and he wrote a book about it. And then in 1968, the Minnesota Historical Society started republishing it. And now they put out a new edition every few years because it's like a it's like the classic Minnesota adventure story. So that's where he got the idea for it. And uh, yeah, it's a whole epic, amazing journey in and of itself, for sure. I'm looking at it right now. I'm going to have to order a copy, Canoeing with the Cree. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, I recommend it. I recommend it. It's a, it's a great book. Well, Scott, this was a huge pleasure. It, it absolutely lived up to the hype. What an amazing adventure. One that we will be uh, talking about for quite a while on this show. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I have to say doing something like this is so helpful for me too because I'm trying to process the last five years and this is a helpful way to start wrapping my head around it. So appreciate it. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.